If you enjoy this podcast, please like us on Facebook and follow us on Instagram and visit our website at lifebetweenthevines.com. You know, we're not making sprockets at, you know, Stanley Sprockets at the Jetsons. Like it's, this is a cool job, but it's also, um, it's terrifying. And the, the weight and the responsibility of what we do is, I'm absolutely terrified and I lose sleep. I haven't slept well in years um, because to do this on the scale that we do across all the different um, labels and, 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 and vintages, um, it doesn't take much to screw it up. Discovering and tasting wine shouldn't be a homework assignment. And we believe that the people who are closest to wine have the best stories. So open a bottle. And welcome to podcast number 528. This week we feature Ryan Rich, head winemaker at Behringer Vineyards, Napa Valley. The history of winemaking in Napa Valley goes back further than most people realize. The mid to late 1800s created America's wine country. Behringer Vineyard's roots can be traced back to 1879 and in fact is the longest continually operating winery in California. Ryan Rich is head winemaker at Behringer and is well aware of the history his wine represents. I met up with Ryan for a chat at the historic Rhine House on the Behringer property last December. Oh, if these walls could talk. Then maybe they do. You can hear Ryan on our Vino Lingo segment defining the term futai. This is something I've been looking forward to for a long time. I'm at Behringer, right in Napa Valley, the heart of Napa Valley, St. Helena, and I am here with Ryan Rich. Ryan is the winemaker at Behringer. Ryan, how are you today? I'm good. How are you, Ray? I'm excellent. Happy to be here. Yeah, on a rainy Sunday morning. Yeah, yeah, very rainy, which, as I've kind of thought, that people will be dancing in the streets because of this today. Oh, we're excited. Yeah, we need a little bit of rain. This is good. Uh, we need about five more of these lined up after this, though. I think you have next two days, don't you? Yeah, we got a little bit of rain, and then hopefully get some in December, too, the end of December as well. So I can tell you it'll probably stop when I get on a plane to leave. That's <laughs> usually how that works. And I want to say a very special thank you to Tia Butts for setting this up. Uh, old friend as well as a uh, just a wonderful person in the uh, PR business. So, um, obviously, I have 8 million questions I'm going to ans- uh, ask you today. We can probably narrow it down to 7 million. I'll try. Okay. I'm just trying again. Yeah. I think the first thing is, uh, how long have you been making wine for Behringer? So, I've been making wine at Behringer since 2016. Uh, that was my first harvest year. Uh, you know, really mostly focused on the Knights Valley vineyards in those days, but now across all of our wines. Well, let's go back into your history first as a winemaker and your experiences with wine. It's, I guess, such a typical question, and I'm sure people ask you this all the time. When did wine get its hooks in you? How did that all start? It is a typical question. I don't really have a very typical answer. Um, You know, I know there's a lot of people that definitely with their family grew up in the wine industry. Uh, Mine was the complete opposite. In fact, my family was the classic Behringer White Zinfandel drinker. Um, And that was really kind of their introduction to wine and then kind of mine as well. So I grew up on a family farm in the Central Valley of California growing walnuts. Um, hmm. and uh, would work there during the year in high school and during summers and uh, lunch was always our big meal of the day. So part of my job was to help my grandmother cook and I got into food and wine by just cooking with her. Um, it was kind of an interesting time because the food network was taken off so um, you know my grandmother would make very traditional dishes for the ranch but uh, she had food network on the background so I kind of got exposed to really cool things and just got really interested in food which then led to wine. Um, 
you know, I started in college thinking I wanted to be in agriculture. Uh, didn't really know what I wanted to do. Um, took a whole lot of intro courses. Um, just happened to take a wine course on a whim because I was really interested in the concept and just fell in love with it. Not only did I fell in love with the subject because I was really a big background in science, um, but just the people. Um, you know, a lot of my classmates are still really good friends this day, so I uh, really just kind of enjoyed my time there. I think it's fun just cooking with your grandma. Uh, what a great opportunity in life to be able to do something like that. Oh, completely. Um, I, you know, beyond just like where I went in life with it and where it took me, just like I think about that time in my life, it was just a really cool time. And not only just to get to know my grandparents so well, but just kind of have that grounded thing. It was a lot of fun. So. Do you mind if I ask, is, is your grandmother still around? She just passed two years ago oh, um, at the ripe age of 99. So um, <sighs> not, uh, it was, uh, she had a long life. So. She sounds like she was fun. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Oh, good for you. So when it came to the point of wanting to become a winemaker, it's, it's funny, I've heard this idea of taking the class as a whim or, gee, I didn't know you could actually make a living as a winemaker. Yeah. Uh, when did it become so solidified with you that this is going to be what I'm going to do? It was right away, really. Um, you know, that first year at Fresno State, you know, taking all those intro courses, uh, I was really interested in um, not only the agriculture side of it, but the science behind it. And it was probably, I'd say, about two weeks in, um, I'd switched majors, um, even switched some classes that semester, um, and really just kind of dove full force into it. Um, it was that blend of everything I was really looking for. I love ag. Ag, you know, feeding people, um, you know, growing foods really important to me. Um, but if I just wanted to do that, I would just go be a farmer. Um, so I wanted to go to school and learn about something a little bit more. And so wine was really interesting to me. When you start off or looking forward into something like this, do you have, did you have preconceived notions about how wine was made or what direction you were going to want to go? Oh, absolutely. You know, I think especially when you go through school, you learn about wine, you've got all these ideas right away on how you want to do things a little bit differently than what's been done in the past. You know, I think probably for me, the biggest thing coming out of school was you know, I learned a lot about the traditions, why certain varieties go together, why they've been planted together. But, you know, you're creative and you want to try things different. Um, so, you know, especially those early days, you know, I thought about blending completely differently than I do today. Hmm. Um, and the more years I've done it, you realize, oh yeah, French have put these five varieties together out of Bordeaux for a reason. <laughs> Most times they work better than other things. So, um, you know, I think probably that preconceived notion of, uh, you know, just tradition might not be the way to go um, has definitely changed. I, I love the tradition of wine and uh, really respect a lot of it now. And it's, it's right, you're there, it's there for a reason. Well, you brought up what I consider one of the most fascinating parts about winemaking, and that is blending. And I think also confusing for the general public. They don't always get that voodoo that you do in blending. Uh, so I guess my first question in that is, are you working with a large group of people? Are you solo, one other person? How does that go for you here at Berenger? Yeah, blending's pretty small. You know, I learned, uh, so before I was at Berenger, I worked at Chateau Saint-Jean, and our flagship wine, Saint-Sapage, uh, is just, you know, French for uh, five grape varieties, and it really is the five varieties of Bordeaux. So I learned a lot about blending while I was working there with Margot Van Stavern, who was the uh, head winemaker. And, you know, for me, we spent some time in groups, but really our best blending sessions were really spending time, uh, you know, one-on-one, -on -one, two of us really working on things um, together. And I carry that through now, work on it with my assistant winemaker quite a bit. Um, I like small groups because in my mind, you know, if you really want to make great wine, uh, it really needs to be kind of a very focused point of view um, rather than kind of an average. And I think you can kind of spend a little bit more time tweaking and really working on those blends really hard with a much smaller group um, and get very focused on it. And it's a real collaborative effort in the end anyway, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Do you belong to a tasting group at all? 
Um, I have over the years. I don't currently, you know, uh, one of the many things that changed through COVID was a lot of tasting groups kind of shut down. I look forward to getting back to it, you know, um, but I definitely believe in tasting a lot of wines. Um, beyond, you know, tasting groups, I've gone, you know, I've spent personal time just going to tastings that, you know, publications put on because I think tasting wines of the world is super important. Oh, totally. Yeah, yeah. I agree. I'm just curious, uh, <clears throat> were these primarily fellow winemakers or were they civilians, as I would call myself? Uh, absolutely. I definitely taste with a lot of civilians. I, sort of, <laughs> I respect people's palates. If somebody knows something about wine, I love tasting with them. Or I love teaching people about wine, too. But like a tasting group, yeah, absolutely. It's generally with winemakers that have, you know, friends that made wine. You know, for me, the one of the coolest things you can do is share a bottle of a friend, you know, and you know the story behind it. Because then they're, it's a little bit more meaningful, but also you can learn a little bit something from it that way rather than just popping a bottle. Oh, that's what it's all about. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I'm, I'm curious, though, too, if you, <laughs> kind of like me here with you, do you get riddled with questions as a winemaker for some of the people who, again, are not professionals? Um, absolutely. You know, uh, we, uh, we're we in the Hudson House, which is the uh, one of the historic houses on the property. I host a lot of dinners here, and I host a lot with uh, uh, people that work in the industry, and sometimes they'll bring their spouses that ask a million questions. I had one night uh, where it was just uh, one of their primary buyers and his spouse, and his spouse must have asked me 40 questions in the first <laughs> 10 minutes, all from things cool. like uh, how, how do you get you know uh, chocolate flavor into wine when you see chocolate <laughs> as a descriptor from barrels, or you know how does red, how do you get the red coloring in the white wines, you know, things like that. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. Those are good questions, though. Yeah. I mean, they, they, they humble you, I would think, as a winemaker to a degree. They do, but also kind of keeps you grounded, right? You take all these things you learn over the years for granted, and it's, you know, certainly for me, I can sit and talk about wine, and I'll assume somebody knows as much as I do. And sometimes it's good to remind yourself that, gosh, some people don't even know where the red color comes from in red wine, so. That is a challenge. It's yeah. interesting to hear you say that, because yeah. you do, you do use terms, and you don't think you know you don't want to spend your day defining terms to people yeah but it does create a bit of a challenge yeah yeah absolutely it does and it's one of those things i i usually remind myself for a moment right when i'm talking to someone it's like remember your audience and then uh, start from there so that's very good remember your yeah. audience that could be a t-shirt yeah so being here at behringer you've uh, you've got some interesting weight on your shoulders because you have this brand that's so well established that's been around for so long I always talk about winemakers living in the past, living in the present, living in the future. That's naturally part of your gig, but also you've got history looking over your shoulders. That's um, it's got to be a little intimidating. Uh, it can be, and I think at times, you know, when you look at the history of Behringer, um, you know, there's a lot of it. Uh, there's not a small amount. You know, we've been making wine for you know, over 140 years. Um, so, you know, there is, I don't know if I'd call it weight, but there's definitely responsibility that comes with that. Um, and for me, the way I've approached it and thought about it a lot is, you know, that history is pretty cool, um, but it's my job to continue it and continue to make that history, right? Um, the history's here because we've done a lot in the past. You can't just live on the past. You got to continue to do that uh, going forward. So you know, a lot of what I think about in my day to day and how to make wine is okay. You know, what is those next steps for us to kind of continue to make some of that history? Sure. And you're young, so yeah. you know. I mean, really, you do. You're the newer generation of winemakers, and and a lot of people are looking to you to see what might be the next thing or how will you change things. Yeah, and you know, for me, it's. It, I never feel burdened by that history. Uh, rather, actually, sometimes it almost almost makes me feel like i got a clean slate in front of me, um, which is a lot of fun to work with. That's a really good attitude. That's a yeah. good way to look at it. Um, now, for the silly question, I'm curious, working at a property like this, um, run into any ghosts around here at all in the cellar at all? 
I haven't. My crew tells me all the time. Uh, no, I personally haven't. Um, it's definitely an old winery. Um, you know, the historic winery, uh, you know, was built back in the 1870s. Uh, the winery we make most of our wine today was built in the 1970s. And even the winery in the, that was built in the 1970s, uh, my swing shift crew is convinced there is a, a lady that haunts the, uh, the barrel halls at night. Um, I'm pretty sure it's just the fans kicking on at a certain time, <laughs> whistling. Um, but uh, they they have been more than convinced of once of uh, somebody roaming the halls for sure. It's fascinating out here. I hear so many ghost stories. Yeah, it just kind of blows me away. It's fascinating because the history out here, Napa's history. People don't realize how crazy it is i'll just use that word and uh much longer than most people realize oh absolutely it was funny uh it was thanksgiving recently i went home to my mom's uh she still lives in kingsburg which is a small town in central valley california i was looking at some of the history there kingsburg was established in the 1890s the winery is actually older than the town I grew up in, which is just a little bit amazing to me to think about. Um, and you know, certainly the winery wasn't the first winery in Napa Valley, so um, I, the region definitely has a lot of history for California. Yeah, I just think, especially people for me who are from back east, and in particular the Midwest, we've been here for such a long time, but you come here and the sense of history hangs. It's yeah. in the air and the Western feel. It's, it's, that's why it's important to come here and it's yeah. why it's important to come here to see these wineries, especially to see yeah. the Rheinhaus. It's amazing. So how many cases are you doing at Behringer these days? Ed? And that's, I'm sure, quite the broad question. It is a broad question. You know, uh, we really focus on our luxury wines that are made here. Uh, you know, our Knights Valley is our largest wine that we make. You know, that sits anywhere from about 80,000 to 100,000 cases. The rest is all pretty small. You know, we do a lot of single vineyards that sit in about the 500 case range and our private reserve, which really is dependent on the season. You know, anywhere from about 1,000 to 2,000 cases, depending on the season. Great. And we should, to be proper, go through what you're making obviously this is Napa Valley so we're talking Cabernet Sauvignon but we're also talking about what else uh, so we make a lot of cabs uh, we make quite a few cabs in the house uh, not only do we make region specific cabs but we do a lot of single vineyard Cabernets as well um, you know really we're if you look at where we sit in uh, Napa Valley we're on the northern end uh, most of our vineyards are also up in the mountains so we're really you know, our varieties are Bordeaux based so uh, Cabernet is our foundation but we do make a little bit of Merlot uh, we make a single vineyard Malbec uh, we also make a single vineyard Cab Franc. Uh, we make a Chardonnay, turns out. Uh, Behringer's got a long history with uh, our private reserve Chardonnay. Um, and then uh, we also make some Sauvignon Blanc and Semillon for the taste room. So. Cool. Great. So you had mentioned Knights Valley, which is predominantly where the fruit you're working with. Is that yeah. fair? Um, it's an area that I love to drive through. It's one of the most peaceful places I've ever been. For you as a winemaker, walking through the vineyards there, I mean, just it's got to be a, quite the experience because of your love of agriculture, to be around that. Absolutely. You know, I always think of Knights Valley as that real hidden gem. You know, you described all the history earlier um, about, you know, Napa Valley. Knights is one of those that's really unknown. It's kind of it's kind of a really good uh, secret that we've kind of held on to and really worked on. Um, you know, it's a area that I've got to work with a lot. So I mentioned before I worked with Chateau St. Jean. Um, our Cabernet for Saint-Sapage come, comes from our Knights Valley Vineyard. So um, I've worked there probably since 2012. So oh, I've spent nice. a lot of time there. And no, I don't get to wander like a hippie. But during uh, <laughs> during harvest, uh, I bet I'd probably get accused of that. It would be I would be imagine um, our vineyards. You know, about 500 acres, 300 of which are planted. Um, so it's a lot of grapes to look at. Um, over the last couple of years, uh, beyond our the original state that the family bought in the 1950s, we've established two new uh, leases: uh, one north of our vineyard, and then one just kind of south, um, up in the hills. So um, I do spend a significant amount of my 
my time there during harvest, and it's a really important um, site in the ABA for us. You know, Behringer was one of the key wineries that helped establish it as an ABA because of that unique terroir. Um, you know, we make a lot of single vineyard wines, and when you go back in our history, uh, when we made the first single vineyard Cabernet we ever made, we got all these Napa Valley properties, and the winemaker at the time said the most distinct place I have is Knights Valley. Um, so you got this Napa Valley winery, and the first single vineyard wine we ever made in 1972 was a Knights Valley Cabernet. I got to tell you, I look for it. I, I love Knights Valley because, it, it, like any wine lover, you see certain labels, and I'm not talking about brands, but yeah. va- uh, but vineyards, and you go for it. And yeah. But I'm curious because Knights Valley is much more of a rural area than it is here. Do you run into issues with critters, as example, uh, wild pigs? Uh, and of course, there's the usual snakes and such things, but... You know, I spent outside of work, I spent a lot of time outdoors, so I love critters, <laughs> especially a lot of critters. Uh, you know, occasionally, you know, I've seen herds of pigs out in the vineyard yeah. as much as 40, so, you know, racing down. So uh, it's definitely an area with a lot of critters, uh, you know, and you'll see evidence when you walk down the uh, aisles. Uh, beyond Knights Valley, you know, our uh, vineyard's up on Howl Mountain, Bancroft. We have one area that we call the bear block because mm. there's a bear that sits back there and eats the grapes, and we try to pick it before the bear eats all the grapes. So um, that's usually just kind of part of what we do. <laughs> now, that's a real challenge, uh, yeah. and I'm assuming the, the pigs eat the grapes as well, is that right? Yes, not the same quantity of the bear would. Be pretty, you'd be pretty impressed with the quantity of grapes a bear can eat in a night. <laughs> I, I can't yeah. even imagine. Yeah. So, I mean, obviously we have a certain degree of fencing. Yeah. I know there's sometimes fences simply don't keep a bear out. Yeah. What do you do? I mean, yeah, that's that's money. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, fencing's a huge part of it, um, but you can only do so much. You know, the thing is, we're out there farming in, you know, the places where all these animals live, so you just kind of manage it how you can. That's very cool. And as far as seeing that many pigs, I mean, have you been in an aggressive situation with them? Personally, no. Um, but I imagine there's people that have. I, I haven't, you know, really they come through at night mostly. I mostly see the evidence the next day when I'm walking through. Um, the rate at which they eat and then it comes out the other end is rather fast. So <laughs> it's uh, it, it's uh, <laughs> pretty clear what was going on before you walk in the row. <laughs> well, this yeah. is what we call nature. Yeah, exactly. That was, that was a good answer. Yeah. So when it comes to single vineyard wines, um, again, another area that fascinates me is how you make that decision. My immediate thought is quality. Yeah. Quality is a huge part of it. Most of the single vineyard wines we make, uh, a huge part of why we make them and their kind of reason for being is when you take our private reserve Cabernet, you know, you've got our private reserve out of Napa um, that says Napa Valley on it. You know, as a wine consumer, how do you know what goes into that bottle? And a huge reason that we make the single vineyards is so you can come to our winery and kind of get to see all the different vineyards and the terroir and the expression that goes into that. Um, So you kind of get to taste those individual sites and see what they contribute. Um, We've done that with our private reserve label for quite some time. We're working on doing that with our Knights Valley. We make a Knights Valley reserve and really expanding, you know, those three estates I was talking about earlier that go into it. So for me, it's wines that need to not only go into our uh, reserve labeling, but a very distinct terroir that is different, that has a reason for being. And that's where generally how we choose to make a single vineyard. And single vineyards are often sought after wines and generally can tend to be a little bit more expensive, right? Absolutely. You know, when you think about it, it's, you know, a single origin of place. Uh, you know, it's not blended um, and it really expresses that place. So it's, uh, from a winemaking perspective, it's the most granular you can get at looking at things. So um, they definitely, definitely tend to be our higher end wines as well. Yeah, that makes sense too. Yeah. So who's your hero? Who's your mentor or mentors that really inspire you in this business? 
Uh, I've had a few over the years. You know, probably my first boss uh, who I worked with uh, was great. Uh, his name was Blake Kuhn. Uh, I worked out at a little winery. It was a little winery at the time called R.H. Phillips out in the Dunnigan Hills. Uh, and he was probably the first person that taught. You know, I came out of school. I mentioned um, how much I love science and my scientific background. I came out of school really focused on the science side of wine. And he was probably the first person that ever taught me to really kind of focus on how something tastes, how it makes you feel, um, rather than just always looking at numbers and kind of seeing that expression of wine rather than just being on the scientific side of it so he was always definitely a mentor um, another boss I worked with as well uh, Ed Killian uh, he, he was my boss for a few years and Ed was one of those guys he was probably the most technical winemaker I worked with but also he was one of those guys that just never took himself too seriously um, so I just enjoyed working with him for many years it's not refreshing yeah yeah so kind of along the lines of the same question is there a uh maybe a rule, maybe a uh, mantra, whatever it might be that you live by as a winemaker that's kind of unmovable? Oh, absolutely. Um, there's definitely, there's a few, um, but probably the simplest one is, you know, really my job is to get out of the way. My job is to find the best place to, you know, get those grapes from and then kind of get out of the way and let it really kind of shine through. So, um, you know, I think there's the old adage, do no harm. Um, that is the first thing that I, I think about when I'm making wine. Yeah. So along again these same lines, I'm sure plenty of people, both in the world of tasting rooms, casual tastings, whatever it might be, yeah. might offer you advice or even professionals. What's the weirdest advice you've ever been given? Oh, I like the rolling of the eye. Oh no, that's a good question. I got to think about that for a sure, moment because I've, I've had I've had some weird ones over right. the years. Um, you know, uh, for me, I think the biggest thing, always the advice I get more than anything is, uh, you know, people always want wines. Uh, I always want to talk about cost, which I always think is an interesting one for me. Um, and, you know, wines cost what they cost because it costs what it costs us to make them. And I think people always want things a little bit less expensive. And the truth is, you know, we make them for what we make them for. And that, that's a huge part of it. So the advice I often get is, can't you make cheaper wine? And I, <laughs> the truth is, I, I want to make good wine. So it kind of costs what it costs. Yeah, the word good is kind of important in there. Yeah, exactly. But it's funny, often I talk to people, the barrel, yeah. uh, whatever kind of aging you do, bottles, yeah. et cetera and especially now things are more expensive yeah well grapes you know grape prices go up and down every year wine prices stay the same so yeah exactly. um, i think that's something i always remind people about agriculture and a lot of that's my agriculture background too i faced a lot of that when we were growing walnuts you know what you get paid for walnuts every year after year changes what the consumer pays in the store stays the same so yeah it's weird isn't it yeah yeah now, agriculture in our country is a little bizarre yeah uh we were talking before the interview about uh as a winemaker you've had all kinds of shall i say unique experiences uh i've met plenty of winemakers who early in their careers even in their internships have done things that would have in the regular world got them fired yeah uh and i'd like to think we learned from our mistakes uh, yeah. can you think of any of those experiences you had that you can look back on and laugh now Oh, absolutely, a few. Um, early on, you know, I one of the things you do as a winemaker is you get to a point where you've kind of thought of all the variables and the way to make the wine, and it's how it moves through the winery is important. So you work with your cellar team quite a bit, and um, there was a year I was really trying to make sure that we um, were really not moving the wines very often, and I needed to do an add on the tank, and I was talking to one of my cellar guys, and it was a fermenting wine, and I thought, you know, let's just roll the tank with nitrogen, put a little gas in the bottom, get the uh, wine to mix, be very gentle with it um, while it was actively fermenting. And the guy I was working with at the time um, looked at me and said, you, you don't want to do that. You're, you're going to have real issues. And I was insistent that this was going to be fine. The tank was three quarters full. We had plenty of space. Um, 
he was really resistant. So I said, look, you know, I, I worked in the cellar. I said, I'll be happy to do it. I'll go out and do it. And uh, tried to roll a fermenting tank with nitrogen. And the ensuing thing that happens is that nitrogen immediately pushes all the CO2 out and you get foam, um, probably about 10 feet high. I think I shot foam out of the top <laughs> of the tank and hit the ceiling at about eight feet above it. Um, there's probably a, still a stain in that cellar from... <laughs> doing it. And I'd been warned plenty it wasn't going to work. I still was determined to do it. So uh, probably the biggest thing I learned is, you know, uh, always listen to your seller guys. They're there for you. <laughs> yeah. I guess that's part of the nature of a winemaker, though. You yeah. Be a little bit, I don't want to say headstrong, but you're going to do what you're going to do. Yeah. And it's sometimes, you know, you think, okay, we only do it this way because that's how we've always done it. And sometimes there's a real reason why we do it that way. Yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. I often call winemakers mad scientists. Do you get to experiment a bit on your own? And have you done these experiments with certain grapes where it's been like, hey, this is really fantastic. Hey, I'll never do that again. Um, I haven't had many that I would never do that again. Thank goodness. I think about it a lot of the time. But yeah, absolutely. You know, I think part of my job is every single year is, you know, you know, we get one shot at the vintage. So uh, my whole thing is, you know, we're going to take what I did last year, which I think was probably the best, um, and scrap it and try again. So yeah, I do experiment a little bit every year to see what I can do to improve things. And um, it is about building, um, but at the same time, it's you got to go into it open-minded. Uh, you know, the big thing for me right now is looking at extraction techniques. You know, we meant we mentioned that we make a lot of Cabernet, a huge part of Cabernet is that structure and how we extract it and you know trying different methods to extract it differently and see how that tastes on your tongue and how it uh, how it helps the wine age long term um, so I've been doing a lot of those experiments over the last few years it's got to be fun yeah I enjoy them quite a bit uh, we haven't had any so far that I go oh god let's never do that again yeah. um, but we've had some that I don't like as better as others and we've had some stuff that's improved too so sure. as it should be I guess that's yeah. kind of part of balance do you make your own wine on the side I don't. I have in the past. You know, uh, there was a real moment in time where I was trying to do that, and then I realized in my head, gosh darn it, you do this for a living, so why are you trying to do this at home, too? <laughs> it is yeah. kind of weird. Yeah. Well, we often take for granted that, you know, I come to work and I get to work with this really amazing winery and have all this fantastic equipment. I do it at home and it's just like me and some like T-bins in my hands and it's, <laughs> yeah. it's not, not quite the same. So, no, just yeah. a little different. Yeah. yeah. Well, we've come to the part of the interview where I ask the question that uh, I enjoy the most and uh, you certainly can take a moment to think about it. Yeah. So I've created a certain amount of fear, I hope so far. Yeah. No, I'm just kidding. I know you do plenty of media, plenty of interviews. Yeah. And uh, what's the one question? that you've never been asked that you would like to be asked? Oh, that's a good one. Uh, that's the one question I've never been asked that I would like to be asked. You know, I think uh, the one, you know, the question I get asked a lot is, you know, who are your mentors? Um, the one thing that I never, you know, that doesn't get asked a lot is, you know, what inspires you on a daily basis? Um, we tend to go around to the people you've worked with or the grapes or the winery, but uh, you know, really what inspires you on a daily basis. So I don't know if I've ever been asked that one. Um, you know, for me, I'm one of those people, and I learned this from my grandfather at a really young age, it's um, I never want to be that person that gets up in the morning and just doesn't give it their all. Um, he worked on uh, our ranch uh, basically till the day he died. Uh, he got uh, he passed away from leukemia in his uh, 80s, and uh, the week before he was still doing 60-hour plus weeks working on the ranch. And uh, I remember getting to work late one day, and uh, he asked me why, and I told him I think I'd stayed up late doing homework the night before and was tired and wasn't sure I was really ready to work that day. And he said, you know, Ryan. 
every day is a gift. You got to decide if you're going to be that person that gets up and gives it all today or not, because you don't want to be that person that just mailed it in today. So um, that's one thing that probably inspires me on a daily basis. Yeah, it obviously stays with you. Yeah. Yeah. Well, he obviously had a life well lived. Yeah. Yeah. Obviously, many people come to Napa Valley to taste. Gosh, if they don't, they're crazy. To come to Behringer, I'm assuming most everything is by reservation these days. Is that correct? It is. You know, we are one of the few properties where we still have a permit that you could show up and taste. But, you know, really what we've found, you know, obviously uh, through the pandemic, we went through uh, where it was appointments only. Um, and what we've really found is it just gives our guests a lot better experience. You know, they get to sit down. They've got a plan tasting out in front of them. they got somebody there sitting there walking them through it. They even got a little bit of food with it as well. Um, um, and it's just a much better experience. We've stuck with that. Um, you absolutely make an appointment on our website. Um, some days, if it's not busy, you can actually come and make an appointment when you show up too. Um, but really, ideally, planning ahead is always good. Excellent. And most importantly, for our listeners who'd like to learn more about you as well as Behringer, yeah. what is your website? You know, we're one of the lucky ones. It's pretty simple. It's www.behringer.com, which is uh, pretty easy. So. Excellent. Yeah. Uh, Ryan, totally have enjoyed chatting with you. Thank you for taking the time. I appreciate it. Yep. No, thank you, Rick. Learn more by visiting Behringer.com. Thanks for listening to the longest running wine podcast online. Subscribe to the podcast at lifebetweenthevines.com or sign up to our YouTube channel. You can also follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Life Between the Vines comes to you from Fifth Floor Recording Company in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Produced and edited by Ray Fister. Our host is Kay Paskoff. Our web geek is Dan Gieschen. Original music by Ray Fister. Copyright 2023.